This is episode 215 of That Shakespeare Life. Just like Shakespeare, our show is supported by listeners just like you who sign up to be our patrons. Our episode today is equipped with expandable history content available only for patrons, including visuals like woodcuts and museum artifacts that coordinate with the history we're talking about in today's show. You can unlock these extras and more benefits by becoming a patron at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. Inside today's episode, we're going to explain the 16th century colloquial term for meddlers, as well as the joke Shakespeare makes about meddlers in his play. That term is a mild curse word in modern English, and the explanation of the joke Shakespeare makes includes coarse references to adult content. If you're listening to this episode in your classroom, you may want to preview the content before sharing it with younger audiences. Psst. Hey! It's me, Cassidy. I know Gary's already done the editing on the show for today, but I just had to jump in here to interrupt the program because I have a special announcement. Starting July 6th, I'm going to be starting my Zero to Podcasting Mastermind Group. It's a one-year training-intensive program where I will work with historians and humanities professionals that want to start their own successful podcast. I'll be walking them through step-by-step how to go from absolutely nothing but a desire to podcast all the way to successful business podcast platform that lets your passion for history work for you. I know this training program works because it's the exact step-by-step method I use to launch that Shakespeare life. And it's the same method that's already worked for other students of mine who started out as listeners just like you. If you're sitting there wishing you had a successful podcast of your own, then come join us this year and let me show you how to make that dream a reality. Now, I'm only taking a handful of people because to work with you in this highly one-on-one personalized way, we're keeping the group super, super small in focus so that I can focus on making sure you get the results that you want. If you want to be in on my exclusive mastermind group and finally start that podcast you've been thinking about, then apply right now at CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. Mastermind is all one word. So that's CassidyCash.com slash mastermind. The deadline to get that application in is coming up fast. It's June 30th and we won't be accepting applications after that date. So go ahead and apply right now. I hope I will see you inside. Okay, Gary, take them back to the show. But they are delicious. They, they kind of taste like, um, I would say, a cross between a, a very sort of tart, sour apple, prunes and dates, if you can kind of imagine. That's a quite caramelly flavours, but at the same time, very fresh, sour flavours too. Welcome to That Shakespeare Life with Cassidy Cash. Cassidy believes that if you desire to successfully learn or perform Shakespeare's plays, then understanding the real life and history of William Shakespeare himself is a must. That Shakespeare Life is the podcast that helps you go beyond the curtain of some of Shakespeare's most iconic works and explore the world of early modern England as Shakespeare would have lived it, learning from the writers, historians, and performers who know it best. And now, here's Cassidy. Five times in Shakespeare's works, he refers to a specific plant called a meddler. In As You Like It, Rosalind talks about grafting a meddler. Lucio talks about a rotten meddler in Measure for Measure. Mercutio uses the meddler tree to describe Romeo's state of mind in Romeo and Juliet. And the last two references to meddlers are found in Timon of Athens when Apimantus both presents a meddler for eating and questions whether someone hates meddlers. Whether or not we should hate or love the meddler fruit is the subject of our show today. Our guest this 
this week and author at BritishFoodHistory.com, Neil Buttery is in the studio with us to share the history of this plant, what it looks like, what it tastes like, as well as what it would have been used for in Shakespeare's lifetime. Neil Buttery is a food historian, chef, author, blogger, podcaster, and scientist who has been obsessed with historical and traditional British food since he began writing his food blogs in 2007 in an effort to improve his writing for his PhD in ecology and evolutionary biology. Ecology lost out in the end, eventually leaving science to pursue a career in food, first holding regular pop-up restaurant events, then a real restaurant. These days, however, Neil is kept busy writing about and studying, and of course, eating, food history in his books and popular blogs and podcasts. He has a particular love of offal and puddings. Neil's latest book, A Dark History of Sugar, is out now and available wherever books are sold. We'll include direct links to Neil's work and the latest book in the show notes for today's episode. Hello, Neil. Welcome to the show. Hello there. Thank you very much for having me. How are meddlers grown and cultivated? Well, meddlers are in the same group of fruit trees uh, that belong to apples and pears. So they're grown as a tree or perhaps as a shrub. Sometimes they're found in hedgerows. If you find a really old hedgerow, it might be there. But yeah, essentially cultivated like apples and pears. Are meddlers considered stone fruits? kind of like a, a peach or are they something different? No, no, that's a separate uh, group of uh, plants. Now, when you slice into a medley, as though you're slicing into an apple, maybe if you imagine it that way, there's um, six pips all lined up in a, in a circle, but the pips are much larger than they are in, in uh, apples and pears. And for those of us in the US, a pip, are we talking the same thing as a seed? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Just, just checking. So, are they are they little, or are they they're? You said they're much larger than what you would find in an apple. Give us a comparison, maybe uh, with well, coins. Well, a, a meddler itself, I would say, depending on there's different varieties, and the bigger on different varieties, of course. But uh, I guess the the one that I've come across, which is which tends to be grown in England and in France, at least, well, not very many of them are grown anymore. But um, I would say they are they are about maybe maybe one and a half inches in diameter the whole fruit they're kind of oval shapes sort of a squished circle shape yes and they look kind of a greeny brown in england we have a kind of apple called a russet apple which is a very kind of rough greeny brown skin to it i don't know if you have those in the u.s you might not know what i mean i don't write off but i have seen pictures of what you're talking about that and that okay. comes from just having a lot of english friends on twitter <laughs> so i've i've <laughs> seen this this picture go around so i i'll i can definitely share some pictures to to this and to the meddler in the in the show oh, notes okay. to get us a picture of what it what it looks like well in the but, fruit world that kind of rough greeny brown skin is called russeting and it's completely covered in this russeted rough skin which you can't really eat so you eat definitely eat the inside. Now you mentioned that they are that you're describing ones that are typically grown in England and France, but are meddlers mm -hmm. native to England? No, like most fruits, they've been introduced at some point. It's had a little bit of a journey, the meddler tree. It started off in the Near East. So maybe would be plant quite sure, Egypt, that kind of area, Mediterranean side of Egypt. And then at some point it was picked up by the Romans. And then when the Romans conquered England, they brought the meddler with them. So we're talking, well, 
first to the fourth century AD. So what were meddlers called in Shakespeare's lifetime? Did they have any other names besides meddler? Yes. <laughs> yes, they used to be called, so the old English name for it is open arse. That sounds like a horrible name for a fruit. <laughs> it is a horrible name for a fruit, but it does very much, very succinctly describe what a meddler looks like. What it looks, yeah, <laughs> I suppose. Now, I now yeah. we laugh at, at this phrase because, of course, it is coarse and and unsavory, I guess. But yeah. we can say that Shakespeare uses the phrase "open arse" in his play Romeo and Juliet. But interestingly, mm-hmm. none of the texts dating to within Shakespeare's lifetime actually applied that phrase. Instead, the phrase "Romeo that she were, oh that she were, and open, etc." from Act Two, Scene One, is apparently an act of censorship, according to noted Shakespeare scholar and previous guest on that Shakespeare. Yes, life, that's what I've heard. Stanley yes. Stanley yeah. Wells. He's says now his research says quote when the 1597 edition was reprinted in 1599 apparently from a different manuscript the Mm -hmm. typesetter printed open comma or which modern editors interpreted as a misreading of open ars which is open arse this was also printed in the 1623 folio explaining that later versions of romeo and juliet printed after 1957 bring this phrase back to the play and you can find copies now that that put open arse into that section of the play neil obviously we can tell that this is a joke highly charged with the inappropriate references here due to the (laughs) fact that they felt they needed to censor it way back in the 16th century all the way through to the 20th century so we'll tread lightly here for our classroom listeners but i want to ask you to explain why a reference to a meddler by Mercutio is intended as a joke. Take us back to the 16th century and and put this in context for us, please. Okay, well, there's several meanings and sort of layers of sort of puns using that that word, uh, open house. So, well, okay, so first of all, (laughs) when you look at a meddler, actually, no, let's go a little step backwards. When you look at um, an apple, stood up and there's a stalk sticking out the top. But if you turn it upside down, there's a little kind of star-shaped little rough bit at the bottom of an apple, if you can imagine that. In a meddler, that little star shape is all large and swollen. So it's like a large star shape. And it's for that reason that people think it might resemble an anus, let's say. Let's be um, more scientific about the words, perhaps. Thank you very much. Uh, we appreciate that. Yeah, but yes, it's, it's, a, it's a bawdy phrase, but uh, it does go back to Old English. Um, the, the word arse, anyway, was not a swear word then. That was the a basic word for a, for a bottom. So it's one of those things where it's come from very innocent, well, at least the, the arse bit, anyway, is, a, <laughs> is an innocent phrase. But as time's gone on, as, uh, I guess as a civilization, we've got a little bit more reserved it's built up connotations as you kind of go through the centuries. So by the time we get to Shakespeare's time, well, so open arse has gained another meaning, and that is to mean a sex worker. And that's for the reasons joke. you may or may not be able to fill in yourself. I won't fill it in for you. <laughs> we, we can figure it out. I think we can make make that jump. But does is was Shakespeare intending to be rude and coarse here? Because you mentioned sometimes the phrase was not. Is he is he making that connection with a, a sex worker? I think he is because it's very much a bit of sort of rough and tumble joking 
with Mercutio. You know, that's the kind of uh, Mercutio kind of definitely has a potty mouth in that entire. Yeah, play. absolutely. So, so he knows yeah. exactly what he's doing. He knows yeah. exactly what he's saying. And uh, mentioning that line is a, is a popper in pair, which is it's a bit like a conference pair. So it's got a very long, thin stalk that tapers at the end. But the but unlike a conference pair, it's, it's kind of quite um sort of bulbous at the base. So the joke there, you know, is that that's like a, a penis and testicles. Yes. Some people say that open ass, the word open ass also refers to female genitalia, but I've never come across that myself, but I've heard, I have heard that. So whether, yeah, who, who knows what part of the anatomy is possibly talking about. We're not a hundred percent sure, but what we can be sure is that it's body, a little bit cheeky. Yeah, I'm sure he's raising an eyebrow. And, and quite, quite <laughs> on, on brand for Mercutio. At, at oh, absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely, so, yeah. Now, the, the fruit gets used again in other plays, not for body jokes. In As You Like It, Rosalind offers a pretty elaborate grafting with a tree description, including mm. a brief conversation with Touchstone about trees yielding bad fruit. Was it a popular hobby or even potentially a trend among professional gardeners for the 16th century to graft various kinds of trees together to try and create new kinds of fruit yeah it was a really big thing in fact um well it's, it's been going on for absolutely centuries prehistoric you know there's, there's a, a lot of evidence that a prehistoric man was grafting fruit trees so even in shakespeare's time it had a quite a you know <laughs> quite a vintage when shakespeare was writing his plays it's just before it's kind of the decades running up to the agricultural revolution. People are getting very interested in breeding all kinds of food, plants and animals. And there was a people really, really wanted to get a good variety of fruits that could grow in different places. So whether it's you know nice and warm Kent down in the south or whether it's blustery, wet, miserable highlands of Scotland. So there's a lot of work going in into crossing different uh, species of plants as well as different strains the problem is when you pollinate an apple tree and you get the apples from the um the seeds so you have to so you have to essentially breed them so get the pollen in there grow the seeds but of course there's natural variation so all the different trees are going to be different just like a set of parents sons and daughters are all different bit of a shuffling of the of the genome going on there when you're getting some offspring so that's going on. That's part one. And then part two is you find where those trees are absolutely delicious, but rather than breeding them by pollinating them again and getting more variation, what you want to do then is start grafting that one so you can have it reproducing asexually, I suppose, just by taking cuttings and then growing them on a rootstock. And people really got into it. And it's it's quite amazing, actually, when it comes to the um, the stone fruits, you know, so your, your cherries and plums and things like that, and your apple family, you can cross graft those quite happily. And what people would do is they would graft several types of fruit tree onto one rootstock. So you could have one tree that maybe had five or six different species of fruit being being grown in it. So people were really into it, and it was considered quite the thing to have those those kind of things in your garden. My children have just started growing their own little garden outside. They've got like squash and tomatoes growing now. But now that I know you can graft a tree to where you've got one tree growing apples and plums and, 
you know, cherries all at one time. I, I see this being an experiment we're going to have to try around here for sure. Yeah, it's a good, it's, 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 it's very, I've never actually done it myself, although, you know, I have grown my own fruit and vegetables, but I've never done any grafting, but it's apparently It, it sounds fascinating. Easy. Yeah. Yeah. I was, I'm going to, I'm going to have to try it, I think. So, well, what was the traditional way to eat a meddler? You mentioned that the outside was not the part that you would eat. So how would somebody eat this fruit? Well, this is, I guess, where we hit a problem, at least for modern taste, because it's not a fruit you can just pick off the tree or even really pick out of your fruit bowl and just chomp down on there like you can an apple. First of all, if you pick them when they look like they might be ready, <laughs> what you'll find is when you bite into it, it's extremely sour and astringent. There's no sweetness there at all. And there's no particular um, dominant flavour there at all either. It's just you know, you just kind of pucker up and it's not very pleasant at all. The trick with a meddler is that you have to let it, if you can, you, if you let it do this on the tree, it's the best, but we can't always do that. But you have to basically let it start to become very overripe. Some people say rotten. That's a little bit unfair. It's not, it's not rotten, but it's getting overripe. Then when you open it up, it's, I think they're delicious, but I mentioned there's the, there's the big seeds in there. You can't eat the skin. It gets very squashy. So you kind of have to end up squashing it between your fingers and sucking out. <laughs> you have to suck out the flesh from inside. And then every now and again, you get a pip, a seed. And yeah, it can be a bit of a pain. But they are delicious. They, they kind of taste like, um, I would say, a cross between a, a very sort of tart, sour apple, prunes and dates. If you can kind of imagine that. So quite caramelly flavors, but at the same time, very fresh, sour flavors too. I've been following Neil on Twitter, who recently made, I think it was a jam out of meddlers mm. and shared some beautiful pictures of, of that. But I wondered, Neil, are the, what are the culinary uses for the meddler from the 16th century? What were some of the, the dishes that they would have made at it? Would they have made a kind of meddler jam? Yes, here it is. My medley jelly. Oh, wonderful. He's got the jar there. I found it at the back of a cupboard. That's (laughs) fantastic. I forgot I had it. It's about five years old. Oh, and and (laughs) that's fantastic. Yeah, it's got nicer. Yeah. I I love that color too. You're right. It looks very caramely. Yeah. Yes, it is. You don't get a a very clear jelly because you have to let them blet. That's the word for letting them go very, very soft. So, yeah, people say, oh, you have to wait till it's rotten fermented. It's not rotten or fermented. The, the nearest I can think of, and this is going to love or hate for some people, but it's more like when you let a banana go really brown and overripe. Now, some people hate that. <laughs> I do know that. <laughs> I love a nice, really brown banana. That's a, that's just like the meddlers. They get uh, they get soft, they get sweeter, and they get much more uh, aromatic as well. The ways that they would be cooked, well, so as a dessert fruit, but mainly as a jelly. They're very squishy. They're, there's the tough outside, there's the pips. So the best way to do it really is to, is to boil it up with a little bit of water, maybe some spices. Then through a jelly back or, you know, a bit of cheesecloth, you let that, that juice drain out really high in pectin because the apple family, you know, fruits are really high in pe- pectin. So you boil that with some sugar and you get a nice set jelly. You don't get a really nice clear, you know, crystal clear jelly like you do from some other fruits because you've had to let them blet so much. But it doesn't matter because I think it's absolutely delicious. 
And the other way, again, using pulp is to make them into a tart. And that's where you pass, uh, pass them through a mill, you know, a vegetable mill. So you get a, a puree out of that and you can mix sugar and butter and eggs and some spices and use that to line a pre-baked uh, pastry case. And you make a little little tart, which I have made. In fact, I've made one. I've got the book here in case you're interested. The Good Housewife's Jewel by Thomas Dawson. I don't know if you've come across it. I've heard of this. Yes. The reason I've picked this book out is... Um, uh, well, I love cooking from this book. The recipes always work. You have to interpret them a little bit yourself because they're not quite like modern <laughs> modern things. But um, this was written in 1596, so it's a contemporary of Shakespeare. So if people are really interested in the kind of food that Shakespeare was eating right at the time he was eating it, Thomas Dawson, you can get transcripts online for free. So I just thought I'd point that out. I thought people might be interested in Absolutely, that. And, and the recipes yeah. really do work. And there are okay. recipes for meddlers in this book as well. So you yes, can try them, try them out yep. and see what you think about their taste. Exactly. Yes. The meddler tart is very good. We'll definitely check that one out for sure. And I'll link to Thomas Dawson's book in the show notes for today's episode. So you can find that and, and try this out. Now, Neil, I know that you've mentioned the, the comparison with bananas about how some people mm. really like this and some people hate this. So I want to ask what the reputation of the meddler would have been for Shakespeare's lifetime. Was this a, a popular fruit or was it something maybe like the prune today where it's like it's used and it's <laughs> and people know what it is, but it's not anybody's like, hey, it's my birthday. Can you make me a cake out of this you know nobody's really going to say that about sure. the prune what what was the meddler's place in popular thought for shakespeare's lifetime well yes i mean you're right they're, they're probably nobody's favorite fruit <laughs> they're okay but they were very very important you know we're, we're still coming out of the medieval era especially when it comes to food like i say we haven't quite got into the agricultural revolution there's still fasts and still famines one of the things that were very important when it came to winter and the early spring the big hunger gap that you'd get would be that there'd be no fresh fruit of course people might make preserves out of their fruit by boiling them up but you getting rid of all the vitamin C by doing that. So there's very little fresh fruit and vegetables, especially when you get into February, March, there's pretty much nothing left. But good old meddlers, you can harvest those, put them somewhere cool. And because they take quite a long time to blet, to you know, become kind of soft and mushy, you can keep those all the way through the hunger gap. So there's always going to be a bit of vitamin C there for you to eat. So they were very, they were really important for society and they got people, you know, through a wintertime without getting scurvy. So they had, they had a place of respect, if not admiration. <laughs> Absolutely. And yeah, they were very important uh, in, certainly in England and France. I mean, the stuff that I do is kind of Anglo-centric, <laughs> um, but certainly in France and England, every village would have had at least one meddler tree. So they were very important. Highly practical. Ground. Yes. Important fruit to have. Yes. Practical, but not maybe the best. <laughs> well, un <laughs> unless, of course, you make the, the tart from, from Thomas Dawson's book, which is something I want to ask you about. If we want to go and try this, I know meddlers are not a fruit that I have here, that, that I don't know anyone that grows that here in the U.S. That just may be my area. I may need to look further. But I wondered if you could give us some recommendations on how could we go about finding a meddler tree or, or even growing one ourselves? Where do we source these from if we don't have neighbors or hedgerows where we can find them? Yeah, I mean, they're difficult to find. I mean, I happen to be lucky in that I know somebody who has a meddler tree. And okay. 
they don't know what to do with their medals. So I get a great big sack full of them every year. So really, the best way to do it is to is to grow your own tree. They're surprisingly easy to get hold of. They're not going to be at your regular Commodore Garden garden centre, okay. but they're easy to get online. And there are plenty of nurseries that specialises in um, lesser known fruits, you know, like medlars and quinces and, and things like that. But yeah, they're, they're not difficult to find at all. I don't know what the prices are in the US, but certainly in England, they're not that much more expensive than your regular plants regular little saplings and shrubs i was doing a little bit of googling of them while you were mentioning they were easy to find online i just i just typed in meddlers for sale and i found yeah three three or four nurseries right here near me that that do sell them and they're mm-hmm. like you know 20 30 for a, a tree that's big enough to already be producing producing meddlers for your garden there so that that's definitely one way to find them Yes, I mean, I'm trying to rehabilitate the meddler, so I tweet about them <laughs> quite a lot. And I'm often surprised, because I always make a claim that, oh, no one's heard of them, you can't buy them anywhere. But I'm surprised at the number of people who, who reply saying, nope, we've seen it down at our farmer's market, or um, we've seen them at, there's a place called Borough Market in, in London, which is a fantastic, huge, famous market, and, you know, it, you can get them there. But okay. I mean, that's fairly niche. So yeah, the best way is, is to is to grow your own. To grow your own. And I would recommend it, actually. I've grown other trees like quinces and some of the rarer apples and pears. I've never done meddlers, but they're the apparently the easiest out of all the trees to grow because well, if you like a nice tidy garden, you won't like a meddler. They kind of end up growing in a bit of a sprawl, even if you do try to uh, tame them and train they're, them. They're very enthusiastic about their role of keeping you alive during the winter. <laughs> yeah, but so. they make so they make so many meddlers. They're very productive. So yeah, that's if somebody's fantastic. got a corner of a garden that's uh, you know got space for a kind of a rambling, random tree then the meddlers meddlers for them and they have beautiful flowers beautiful flowers in the springtime too so i know we would love to learn more about the history of meddlers from the 16th century and of course your work is a great place to begin and we'll link to your website and resources in the show notes today but what are some Mm -hmm. of your favorite books or resources you can recommend aside from thomas dawson's book where we can explore how these plants were grown for shakespeare's lifetime and sort of the their place in the 16th and 17th century well, it's quite hard to find literature, actually. Not that many people write about it because it's, it's no longer a fruit that's got any kind of place in the economy anymore. And it didn't really have a place in the economy in the first place, really. Like I say, it's something that has grown on common land in villages. So it's quite a hard one to, to pin down. That said, there is one writer who, and it's not a huge amount, but it's the most scholarly Thing I've found. <laughs> I'm not sure if this is available on Google Books. It might be because it's, it's it's fairly old now. And that's uh, Jane Grigson's Fruit Book, which is an A to Z of fruits. But it's very, I don't know if you've come across Jane Grigson. She's my food hero. The great thing about Jane is, first of all, her recipes work, but she writes very scholarly, but in a very approachable way about all the food that she writes about. Sometimes to the point where her introduction to a recipe might take up six pages and the recipe might be two sentences long. (laughs) (laughs) So if you really want to know about the history and the way people used food in general, Jane Grigson is a brilliant author to find. She pops up a lot in secondhand bookshops. 
But yes, she's got a chunk on there about the meddler. There's another writer called uh, Elizabeth David who's written about her as well. And she's got a book of collected, well, just writings and diary entries called An Omelette and a Glass of Wine. You can find something about meddlers there. But really, that's about it. Those are excellent resources. We'll link to Jane Grigson, Elizabeth David, as well as Neil's work and Thomas Dawson's book in the show notes for today's episode. So make sure you stay tuned for the link for where to find all of those. Now, Neil, we ask everyone this next question here at That Shakespeare Mm -hmm. Life, and that's what's the one book you would take with you on a deserted island? My friends in England tell me I'm supposed to allow you the complete works of Shakespeare and a copy Mm -hmm. of the Bible. So your choice would be in addition to those. Okay, well, talking of scholarly writings, the book that I would bring, I have it here, Food in England by Dorothy Hartley. Oh, fantastic choice. And and so appropriate for today. Uh, You could use it as a pillow, even if we weren't going to read it. It's quite a a tome. But Dorothy Hartley, absolutely fantastic food writer. This was written in the 1950s, but she spent decades writing it. And she was interviewing people who in the 80s and 90s then, and it was kind of a last window into a, a Victorian way of life. And, you know, they, they could remember what their grand- grandmothers and grandfathers told them. So it's a real window into the minutiae of, of daily life in England, which sounds like it would be quite dry, but she writes so colourfully and evocatively it's an amazing book, and she also illustrates it herself, and she has these wonderful, beautiful illustrations throughout. So that's that's the book that I would bring. I think you'd be well set up in your deserted island, for sure, and you could take a nice nap on it when you got finished. Indeed. So what's next for you? What are you working on now that you're excited about? Well, my new book, my first book, A Dark History of Sugar, uh, has just come out, so I'm very excited about that. That was um, written under lockdown. <laughs> the COVID epidemic. It was certainly something that kept me uh, focused and and entertained. So that's quite good. I'm really pleased about that. It's had good reviews already. So I'm excited to see what everybody else thinks about it. It was quite a thing to write. Um, there's a lot of dark history in the world of sugar, as I'm sure you can imagine. Uh, I've just handed in my second book, which is focus more on England. I can't really say too much about it at the moment, but it's to do with 18th century cookery book writing and domestic service. These are fascinating books. I've had a look at A Dark History of Sugar. It is definitely worth the read. You can find that on barnesandnoble.com, also at amazon.com, and we'll have links to these. So you can check that out. Absolutely worth the read. Nil has put together just a great history of England's colonial past and the, the impact of sugar, as well as how it came over here to the United States. So definitely check that out in the show notes. And Neil, I can't wait to see your second book on the 18th century cookery book writing, because if it's anything like Dark History of Sugar, it's definitely worth the read. Thank you so much for being here and joining us today for our look into meddlers. This has been a really fun conversation and I'm honored to get to speak with you. Thank you for being here. Thank you very much. Be sure to leave us a comment and rating on your favorite podcast platform to let other listeners know where they can learn something new about Shakespeare.
As promised, the links you need to find more on Neil Buttery, his latest book, and the resources we mentioned today, please visit CassidyCash.com slash episode 215. That's CassidyCash.com slash EP215. Our show notes are where you'll find links to books, resources, pictures of the meddlers, as well as some bonus links to where you can buy them yourself so that you can buy them and cook them at home if you would like to try out that version of Shakespeare's Life. You can find all of these things and connect with our guest, Neil Buttery, including the comment section where you can chat with us about the show all inside the show notes. And the link for that, again, is CassidyCash.com slash episode 215. CassidyCash.com slash EP215. If you enjoy the history you learn about here each week and want to help support our show and dive into the history of William Shakespeare even further, then consider becoming a patron. In our patrons area, we give insider access to the in-depth research that goes into the behind the scenes of our show. Like for this week, our detailed show notes just for patrons include paintings and woodcuts of meddlers, 16th century historical illustrations, as well as links to cookbooks like Thomas Dawson's book and other coordinating content that goes along with the history you heard about today. If you would like to explore this in-depth research for this episode and all of our others, consider becoming a patron. You can explore all the benefits of supporting our show and sign up today at patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's patreon.com slash that Shakespeare life. That's it for this week. Thank you for listening. I'm Cassidy Cash, and I hope you learn something new about the Bard. I'll see you next time. Bye-bye. Thank you for listening to That Shakespeare Life. As always, the best conversations happen after the episode over at CassidyCash.com. Become a part of a vibrant Shakespeare conversation by adding your voice over at the website. Until next time, remember, when you want to know William Shakespeare, you have to go behind the curtain and into That Shakespeare Life.